Hello, everybody, and welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding roads that lead around the Delmarva Peninsula. If you're new here, welcome, and if you're a returning listener, welcome back. I have noticed that I do have a few new followers, so thank you very much. Um, And I do realize, too, it's been quite a while since I've uploaded a new episode. Um, I've been working with not only balancing, um, you know, my doctor's appointments, but also with my father who's had three types of cancer in three years and a health scare with my son, which thankfully, even though in some ways we live in a healthcare desert around here, um, not a lot of options for healthcare. There is a children's hospital in Delaware, so it's about a two hour drive, but I would have driven wherever they needed me to go. Um, but thankfully, there was you know, a very renowned children's hospital where you know, we were able to get him pretty quickly. Um, and so he's fine. That's all taken care of. Um, it was just scary there for a little bit of time. But thankfully, everything has worked out. Today's episode will in some ways be a continuation of the episode that I uploaded at the end of December. And really, they can each be standalone episodes. But with one of the people that was involved in the murder of Denise Rudy, and that's what we covered in the December episode, there was somebody who should not have been out to be able to actually commit the crime. And so that was very frustrating, not only doing the previous episode, but going through and looking at Christopher Johnson's history. And Christopher Johnson is the person we'll be discussing today. And just trying to kind of figure out what would have been the best course of action. We'll be looking at some of the policies and procedures when it comes to the Department of Corrections and really what their goal is. Is it to punish, as in looking at the word penal system? You know, we get words such as penalty from that. Is it a form of punishment or is it really a Department of Corrections where you're looking to address a behavior and take corrective action towards it? And all of that's coupled with a question of how lenient is too lenient and how harsh is too harsh and where is a good medium ground. Well, since we're talking about a murder being committed, we can probably say that none of the goals were reached in the case of Christopher Johnson. And at times you almost want to like bang your head against the keyboard when you're looking at things, wondering, you know, how could somebody let this happen? But I try to look at all sides of a coin. And I do think rehabilitation is an extremely important part of the prison system because otherwise inmates would be released back out into society without some of the tools that they may need to be able to contribute to society, get a job, and live a fulfilling life. Because that really is the ultimate goal when someone is released from prison. Because if not, it just becomes a revolving door. And we definitely don't want that either. But I think many of us have seen over the course of at least my lifetime 
things becoming very lenient and sometimes wondering why arrests are even made. And then sometimes even the wrong people get blamed when something happens. Um, just as an example, I read an, um, a petition one time wanting to hold police liable because somebody broke a restraining order. Well, the police had arrested the person three times, and three times the prosecutor did not ask for any bail or bond. The judge didn't assess any, and he was back out on the street until after the third arrest, he ended up killing the person who, you know, who he had had the um, restraining order out against him. So those are the types of cases where I think we're seeing that more and more often. And, you know, whether they be prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, every part of the penal system has to try to balance things out. And we also then have prison overpopulation. And when you have overpopulation, even if there are programs within the prison to try to help rehabilitate the inmates, you end up with not having the rest of the resources, such as having enough guards to be able to manage the number of prisoners. And so then those systems themselves aren't able to be used to their fullest extent because there's just not the manpower. And a good portion of people serving time in prison aren't necessarily there for a violent crime. So especially when crimes are not violent, you know, I think those are the ones that have the best chance of being able to learn from their mistakes and try to work on giving them resources. And then just as an aside to that, looking at today's age with technology advancing very quickly, you know, you need to keep inmates up to date on what's going on so that when they get back into the workplace that they have at least a pretty good idea of what they'll need to be doing. Unfortunately, though, Christopher Johnson really just used the system. He knew it. He had used it before and nothing ever happened. And probably by the end of this episode, you'll be wanting to bang your head like I did. And that was, I'll, I'll let you know too, I also faced some questions in myself as to whether or not I even could continue doing the podcast. And part of that was reading different articles. And, you know, sometimes, you know, how newspapers, they'll have nationwide sections and reading about crimes that 30, 40, or even 60 years ago happened. And it's just like a repeat, a repeating cycle. And I've said it before, I'll keep saying it. One of the reasons I do this is I want to try to see what we can learn, you know, about what happened, what are ways that we can improve any system, whether it's the penal system, um, early intervention, and in the cases where I'm looking at natural disasters or man-made disasters, did we learn anything from them to either help prevent those disasters from happening again or to mitigate the impact if there's no way to stop something from happening, such as a storm or something like that. And to keep reading articles that are similar with only changes to, um, say, the technology used um, to track someone down or you know what was going on 
in the background of a case, you know, looking at a different time period, basically. It's just the same thing over and over again, and sometimes even the lenient sentences over and over again. And so while the murder of Denise Rudy took place about 24 years ago, a little over 24 years, Christopher Johnson's history went back further than that. And whether or not the judge in one of the last times he was seen in court knew about his extensive history, we really don't know. But I'm not going to really get into too much now. Um, I'll leave that until we get into the actual, you know, um, body of the story. But it was just extremely frustrating and just wondering, you know, why? Why haven't with, you know, the immediate access to information for people to be able to study, um, you know, human interactions and human emotions, um, motivators, we can look at that from all across the world, yet we haven't been able to you know, find a way to stop some of the horrible things that people do from happening. And for the first time, I think that I can ever remember, I've looked at articles and just not read them based on the title, just saying, I don't care if it's important for me to read it right now. I just can't read something like that, um, you know, something about a crime something horrible happening to another person. And it was another person that did it, you know, wondering how we can be like that to each other. And usually if it's about crime, especially in my locale, I want to know about it so that I can take you know, the proper precautions to prevent that, which on an aside actually reminded me, I need to lock my car. And that's about technology as well, because I just did that from my home. Um, but 20 years ago, here, I guess things have changed because 20 years ago, I wouldn't have worried as much about my car not being locked. Whereas now, um, between cameras that I have all over the place, I mean, I've seen people in my yard at night that were up to no good. <laughs> so um, it was just, like I said, difficult sometimes to read an article or listen to a story because it was just really depressing. And I just couldn't bring myself to do that at times. And two, with being a mother, um, I do think I've gotten a lot more sensitive about things, um, you know, since I've become a mother. So that probably, you know, too, with what was going on with my son probably didn't help um, when I saw some articles come up. So not to spend an extremely long amount of time on the intro, I just want to go over a couple of things. One is Google Podcasts will be going away sometime in April, and I don't know what that will mean as far as how you can listen to you know, not only this podcast, but any podcast. I know I listen to podcasts through Google, and you can just usually download and go. Um, if you're not going to have access to Wi-Fi or you don't want to use a lot of data when you're out. And the podcasts are now going to be converted um, to YouTube. And I know that you can't download, at least for their regular content, unless you have um, the premium plan. So, you know, just as kind of a heads up, if you haven't seen that, that's something that'll be coming up pretty soon. Also, any of the sources that I used will be linked in the description of the episode. 
most of the um, the sources in this case are newspaper articles, whereas with the original story on the murder of Denise Rudy, there were some court documents as well that gave a lot of information. But this will um, be mostly newspapers, and they will be from newspapers.com. So if you don't have a subscription, you may not be able to read the whole article, just to kind of let you know. And finally, as you can probably guess through both the name of the podcast and what I've discussed so far, some of the topics may be um, hard for some people to listen to. So this will not have as many details as the one that I uploaded at the end of December, but most episodes that I, you know, or most topics that I cover do usually have some type of content warning in there because there's a variety of different things that I might discuss that may be a little hard to listen to. So with all that being said, let's get into today's episode. Now, first, I do want to give a quick recap of the December episode. If you just want to listen to this episode without going back to the previous one, I will, after I'm done editing, put the start and stop time of the synopsis. So if you want to just skip ahead, you can do so. But in December of 1999, Denise Rudy and two work colleagues went to a bar to listen to another colleague play in a band. The previous night, three men, Siddiqui Garden, Christopher Johnson, and James Hollis, had also committed a crime, an armed robbery. Now, Hollis could not actually participate in the crime due to um, having a leg that had been amputated, so he needed either crutches or a wheelchair to get around, but he did help in the planning process, so he was also prosecuted. On the night before Denise was murdered, Siddiqui Garden and Christopher Johnson went out and they robbed a couple at gunpoint with Johnson actually handling the gun that night. They did pretty well. They went to Walmart and used a credit card, and thankfully that Walmart had pretty good surveillance cameras. And then the next night when they did approach Denise Rudy and her colleagues, it was now Siddiqui Garden who had the gun and Johnson acting as a lookout. In the process of the armed robbery, Siddiqui Garden shot Denise Rudy. She was still in the driver's side of her car. Her two colleagues had gotten out of the car already, and neither one of them said that they had cash or could give um, Garden anything, but Garden did shoot Denise. There were varying reports as to whether or not Denise had also said she didn't have any money on her or whether she was complying with Garden's commands. Either way, he shot her. It doesn't matter the reason why. Nobody has a right to shoot another person like that. He was found guilty, but he also shot at the female colleague that was with Denise that night and was found not guilty of attempted murder, which I find absolutely mind-boggling, but that's what the jury found. And where, we, where we're at now is with Christopher Johnson. And, you know, I mentioned the Walmart security footage, and they were able to link the two robberies, and they saw the men using a card at the Walmart, so they were able to trace it back 
to the three men. And in the early days of the media coverage after the arrests, it was Christopher Johnson's name who actually made the splash across the headlines. And the reason for that is just earlier that year, he had walked away from a work release facility after going out on a court date. Just three months prior to Denise's murder, Johnson was at the Morris Center. He was supposed to have attended a court date in Wilmington on September 21st. And this was a facility where if you had um, a court date, if you had um, a job or a doctor's appointment, you could go out for those reasons. So he had been given a 36-month sentence into the program, but as you'll learn, he knew he could just kind of walk away. And that's what he did on September 21st. Now, the Morris Center was not really having a good week that week. Johnson had walked away on the 21st, but on the 20th, another person who had been sentenced to the Morris Center also walked away. In that case, the man who walked away had carjacked a car in Felton, Delaware. And I'm sorry, um, I can't remember if I mentioned Morris Center was in Dover, which is about um, about halfway through the state. And Felton is just a little bit south of that. But he carjacked somebody in Felton and in the process stabbed the driver nine times. Nine. He was charged with, and I'm quoting here from the news journal, he was charged with first-degree attempted murder, kidnapping, carjacking, and robbery, end quote. So this is a little rant you might have heard before. Um, and, you know, if you have, I apologize, but I just hate the word attempted in front of any charge because usually when that word is in front, the sentence is much lower. And in my mind, it's like the intent was to kill. I mean, he stabbed somebody nine times, and I don't think anybody would stab someone nine times without the intent, intent to kill someone. So odds are this person got a shorter sentence because he wasn't successful. And I don't like that, but I'm just going to make it a quick rant about that. But back to Morris. Um, really, right after the um, Denise Rudy case and finding out that Johnson had walked away from Morris um, just before Denise's murder, people really wanted to look at the way that Morris or really any system or anywhere in the Department of Corrections system where it was communicated when someone would escape. While, you know, initially they did look at it and make some suggestions in many ways, it still seems less than adequate to me, even after the changes were made, especially when looking at these two people in specifics, um, which would be Johnson and the person who walked away the day before. A spokesperson for the Department of Corrections named Elizabeth Welch um, said that in what I'm deeming as one of the understatements of the year, said that, quote, anytime one of our offenders is accused of a violent crime, it's terrible. 
end quote. And that's where most of us would probably just shake our head and say, no kidding. But she did also explain something that was called safe streets. And that's where law enforcement and probation and parole officials would patrol the streets at night and try to pick up anyone that might either be at risk um, for breaking probation or parole. Um, They would be looking also for anyone who might have escaped or walked away from a work release type program. And overall, she did give some numbers about people who were still missing um, and listed as escapees in the state of Delaware. She said that between the 1970s to 1999, so there was not a specific date at this point in the 1970s, there were 115 people who had the status of escapee. So that could be up to 29 years. And 115 people isn't really a big amount, but when you look at the size of Delaware, it might be. The thing is, a lot of people are either caught on another crime later, they're caught pretty quickly because they go back to someone's house who they're associated with, so um, you know, officers go and check out those places, or even some, some of them will turn themselves back in, especially if there are family members who say, you know, that it would be more beneficial to just go back, serve their time rather than be an escapee and a fugitive for who knows how many number of years until possibly the statute of limitations runs out. When asked specifically about Christopher Johnson, Welch said that she did not have anything to specifically say whether or not the Safe Streets program had actually looked for Christopher Johnson, but she did say that as part of a program, they would have normally looked at places he would have frequented. So as Johnson was originally from Newcastle County and that area, and he was in Dover, which is the middle county, that's Kent County, there's only three counties in Delaware, so you know, no matter where you are, you're always within two hours max to anywhere else in the state. And that's like from tip to bottom and driving slowly like I do. But his court date had actually been in Newcastle for a family court date. So he would have been given a bus pass and would have gone back to a place where he lived, where he would know people. So theoretically, People should have been looking out for him in, you know, his family home, in an apartment that he may have had, a girlfriend's residence, you name it. But Welch said she did not have the specifics. Part of the state program for escapees also would have put that escapee's name and information into a statewide database. So again, this is state wide, not, you know, the Eastern Shore, like the whole Eastern Shore, not the whole Atlantic region, not the whole country, but statewide. So, like I said, it's only two hours from the very northern part of Delaware to the very southern part. Um, So, you know, he could very easily have gotten to New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, very, very easily. Now, if say possibly Johnson had been stopped for something else and he didn't have his ID on him. And remember, this was 1999. They wouldn't have been able to as quickly get his fingerprints matched or anything like that. 
they would not have necessarily been able to identify him as quickly. There would have also been something sent to the Associated Press to say that he was an escapee. But unless somebody was actively going to look at the Associated Press in 1999, it's doubtful that they really would have known, at least as an average citizen out trying to work, run errands, make appointments, they would not have necessarily known that he escaped. It would be only through news or press releases that were put out to the public. And I keep saying 1999 because I think we can all just kind of go to today and we can go onto a local news website. We can look at all the crime news and the news that we find important. They can put alerts on there, but not necessarily at this time. Yes, there was the internet, but not as many people were using it for things outside of work um, or research, things like that. It was really in its infancy in a lot of ways. Um, I had just graduated college about a year and a half before this took place. And while I use the internet for a lot of research and things like that, not everybody was using it as much. In quite a coincidence, though, the day before that Christopher Johnson was arrested in the connection to Denise's case was the day after changes were implemented within the Department of Corrections about what to do when somebody escaped or walked away from a program. Basically, a lot of the information and steps that they took would have been the same. Um, the database would have been statewide. That didn't change. Um, but with the changes, they would also additionally notify law enforcement directly to areas that were around the Morris Center. So, you know, to the poor residents living around this area, um, where not only Morris Center or any place that is close to a Department of Corrections facility, the law enforcement would have been notified directly, which is kind of scary to think that with somebody walking away, local law enforcement to that center would not have been notified directly. I mean, my first thought would be, okay, yes, you want to notify the police in the areas where the person lived or had friends, but also in the immediate area. Because even though he had a bus pass to go north, he could have just gone somewhere else closer to Dover to kind of throw the police off his scent. So, you know, that to me, that's something that I think should have been done prior, but it was um, something new that was implemented, um, ironically, just the day before Johnson's arrest. Delaware kind of looked at their program and tried to mirror it um, with Maryland's, but at least at this point in time, there weren't a lot of steps being taken, in my opinion to really address the needs of the community after somebody escaped. What was just as concerning is that when these changes were made, spokesperson Welch said that they didn't know if they would have actually put this protocol on um, the offenders that had previously walked away or escaped. So that 115 number of people that had walked away or escaped from sometime in the 1970s to 1999, it may not have been put into effect for those people. So if you made that cutoff, I guess, you know, it was kind of just 
luck of the timing in that you weren't underneath that new protocol. But again, there really wasn't a lot that had changed. The main focus of the change, though, was to make other law enforcement officials aware of different um, programs and or the training of the program. So say in the months immediately after the changes, it was really going to be spent on training the people involved in the Department of Corrections on what they needed to do. So rather than looking at those 115 people and trying to prioritize them, they would be looking at training in the new system and the new way they were going to do things. So we look at these types of work release, or we'll just say treatment centers, because Morris also worked on drug treatment as well. And that was something that was one of the main benefits of the program, and that the first three months, three months in the program would have been spent on intense drug treatment and rehabilitation. But it was a more laxed um, system when it came to them actually being on, say, lockdown or anything like that, even though there were protocols in place as to where somebody should go or not go, what were the reasons that they needed to leave the facility. Yes, there were controls there, but it was much more lax than any type of actual prison or correctional institute. So we would think then that most of the people who are at these facilities would be, you know, pretty nonviolent. So a question that I found myself asking was, would I, as a judge or any other official, look at a person who, while in the course of an armed robbery, fired at a car, fired a gun at a car that was fleeing him as he tried to rob them as being nonviolent? I think most of us, once we hear, heard gun firing or armed robbery, you know, car fleeing, anything like that, those would have been indicators to us that this is probably not a nonviolent person. This is someone that we should be concerned about, but apparently not. So let's go back in time a little bit. Let's go to December of 1989. Christopher Johnson was in a similar type of program, and he walked away. And I guess he just didn't like being in prison in December. So fast forward eight years, and in December of 1997, he was also in a program, and he walked away from that as well. So in these two instances, he was not at a correctional institute such as Sussex Correctional Institute or James T. Vaughn. He was at a facility that was either a treatment or work release or both. Now, one of the places um, was in Wilmington. So that meant he would have been close to where he had friends and family. So it would have been relatively quick for him to get somewhere. And by the time somebody realized either he didn't come back from where he was supposed to be or that he had just walked off the property, he could be at somebody's home and in hiding. So he's walked away twice, 89 and 97. Going back to what Welch said, um, she said that many of the people who 
take part in the work release or treatment programs and are serving really any sentence um, in the Delaware justice system will at some point in time be released. They will need to be integrated and become part of the community again. And that's why, you know, the penal system looks at these types of treatment centers and work release programs to try to give those convicted of a crime the support that they need or to help them find ways that they can go back successfully into society. And so, yes, for nonviolent offenders, this would make a lot of sense. And especially if it is drug related or something that took place um, that was alcohol related, this could be a good way for them to get the treatment that they need. While also, if they don't necessarily have the support outside of the system or if they don't have a job, finding ways to give them support to keep them otherwise occupied, I do think it's an important role. But what makes Johnson's last escape more egregious to me is that because of his past history, he should not have been able to walk away from the Morris Center in September of 1999. So just in case you've lost track of his escapes, we have December 89, December 97, then September 99, and he was involved in the murder of Denise Rudy in December of 1999. Now, the judge who sentenced him to this treatment facility, um, and I apologize if I'm not going to say his name correctly, but Judge Richard S. Gabaline, um, he gave Johnson a 36-month prison term, but instead he suspended that as long as he did three years at Morris. So theoretically, this should have been beneficial to Johnson. It did include the drug treatment program, and many of the articles that I read that included the name Christopher Johnson, where the birth, or I'm sorry, the age kind of matched, and I think it was was talking about this Christopher Johnson, they all seem to be related to drugs. So if that was in fact him, this could have been really beneficial for him to try to get his life back on track. Even though he had committed violent violent crimes, he hadn't killed anybody, which saying that out loud just seems very weird um, because I still consider him a violent criminal and he was given a lot of breaks here. So this really was a gift that he was given and he did not take that gift. He walked away from it and Denise Rudy paid with her life. Now, one might say, well, there was another person involved. That other person may have still gone out to commit a robbery and shot someone else. May not have been Denise, or it may have been. Nobody knows. But it may have been that, you know, security you have in numbers, that there's two people, one who can either help look out or who could help subdue another person if there's more than one person that they're trying to rob. But that's a security in the number of people involved. So Siddiqui Garden may not have felt as assured if he didn't have somebody to look over his shoulder for him. Going back to what we know about Johnson as well, one of the instances of a crime that took place previously was in 1994 when he did plead guilty to first degree robbery. 
And that did also include a gun as he showed the gun to the person he was attempting to rob. So I think anything that includes a gun, even if he didn't fire it, that should be considered to me a violent crime. Now, I have touched briefly on what happened in 1999 when he escaped. According to Welch, um, he should have been in the program since around June um, and would have served those first three months as intensive drug treatment, so he wouldn't have been able to leave the facility even for work, which I do kind of find strange is if someone, say, has been convicted of a crime, it was nonviolent, and they sentence him, them to this treatment, if they already have a steady job, I, I would think it would be more stressful to have to go into the facility and lose that job. But then again, I guess the only other option would be going to jail and you would be losing the job anyway. But still, it could be more supportive, I think, for the person to still have the job, but that's neither here nor there. We've already seen that, at least at this point in time, that it didn't really seem to work. And as I'm sure we can all ima imagine, there was anger that was shared amongst all of Denise's loved ones, her friends and family, and this can be echoed in her mother-in-law statements. Now, Denise was a married mother of four, and her mother-in-law, Betty Rudy, made the following statement, quote, If I were a judge and I knew this guy walked away before, any judge with common sense would not allow him out on work release, end quote. Now, according to Welch, again, the spokesperson for the Department of Corrections, it, she said that because he did have that history of escaping, he really should not have been able to be part of the program. And if he had committed a violent crime at some point in time, he couldn't have been part of the program unless he passed a mental health evaluation and with the recommendation of the prison system. To go back to a News Journal article to quote, participants can't have escape records, can't be sex offenders and violent offenders, or admitted only if they pass a mental health exam and when a recommendation from their prison, end quote. I know it doesn't quite seem to flow, but that's what it said. So there were reasons why he could have been let into the treatment facility um, as compared to prison. But there's no record that he passed a mental health requirement. And to me, again, some of the things he had done indicated he was a violent offender. He had escaped from other facilities. He had fired a gun at people before the instance with Denise Rudy, even though that was Garden who fired that gun. Still, he was involved. And he had shown other people a gun before. So all of this together should have made him not eligible for the program. But unfortunately, the judges can also override these. A judge can appoint someone to go into one of these treatment and work release facilities, even if they have that escape on their record. And I guess it would be in some ways easy for them to make the decision because there were a lot of requirements for those who were in the facilities. So the first three months, they had the intense work release, I'm sorry, um, the intense drug treatment. And then if they went to their jobs at any time, someone from the Department of Corrections could come into their job and check to make sure that they were there. 
They could check in with supervisors to make sure that they were doing what they were supposed to do. So it's not like they left the facility in the morning and could just go out and hang out with their friends or anything. They had to be at where they were supposed to be. Um, the other times, you know, again, that they could leave it was for a medical appointment or for a court appointment. So this brings up the argument then as to what's too lenient and what's too harsh in terms of sentencing. A uh, representative from Dover, Donna D. Stone, said, quote, This is exactly how minimum mandatory sentencing began. People felt judges were being too lenient, end quote. So the point I feel that she was trying to make here is that when you have a mandatory minimum sentence, judges don't have any sway over that. It's you have to look do this. You have to serve this amount of time. You have to do this program or whatever the parameters of that sentence say. And the judge cannot go less than that. What some people see as a downfall to that is if there are mitigating factors such as you know, say someone lost their job and they committed theft to quite literally feed their family, you couldn't take that into account and maybe give them a less harsh sentence. You would have to give them that minimum mandatory sentence, even if you feel that there were mitigating factors. So someone who did steal for the benefit of their loved ones um, would get the same sentence as someone stole just so they could say, go on a trip or buy drugs, which, let's face it, is probably what most of that is for. So it left that decision-making out of the judge's hands and just said, mandatorily, somebody will serve this sentence. And the judge had no say in that. And I personally like the idea of it being very objective. You know, you can't go outside those lines I'm there about 95%. But there is that, just that part of me that says maybe there are sometimes mitigating factors, especially if it was not a violent crime, where maybe it should be a little more lenient. And so that's the downside to having these things happen, is you take that decision out of the judge's hand, where that five, those 5% of people, let's say, who really have those mitigating factors you can't do anything. You still have to sentence them the same way you would sentence a hardened criminal, except for the fact that you're the hardened criminal. There's probably years tacked on because of previous offenses. So when people hear about cases of work release programs that go wrong, of people escaping, especially when there are episodes of violence that happen after the escapes, it does leave people really questioning these types of programs. It leaves many people hurt, afraid, angry, disgusted, and just questioning what the penal system is doing to keep most of society safe. And those who are most directly affected, the victims of the crimes or their families, are left to live with this for the rest of their lives. Whereas if the person gets sentenced to a work release, they could be out in that three years and just kind of look forward, whereas their victims always will have to look back and live with either the memories of what was done to them or live with the loss of a loved one. One thing at the core of almost any administrative or legislative error, in my opinion also, 
is a lack of communication. Now, looking at this, we would say that knowing that an inmate who was in a work release program was or did walk away and then was arrested for the murder of someone, we would all be extremely angry and want to know who made this decision, why they made that decision, and how are they going to answer for that decision. Going back to Welch, since she is, again, you know, the spokesperson for the Departments of Corrections, she said that she could not specifically say whether or not the judge had actually known that Johnson had walked away before. There really wasn't a way to find out if there was something like a pre-sentencing report. I know that at least in current cases in a lot of courts that I've seen or read files on, there's something called a pre-sentencing report, and that gives the judge everything they need to know, um, whether there's been previous um, convictions, you know, everything about their criminal history and other factors that could affect the sentencing. So if the judge here had had that type of pre-sentencing report, they could have seen that he walked away from these two different programs, one just a couple of years earlier than you know, this case took place. So I'm not going to put him in another one because he knows he can already walk away. You know, He can just go in there and walk away as soon as he's given a little bit of freedom. But Welch was not able to say whether or not the judge knew. And I think that's a major issue when they weren't able to readily say, yes, the judge had all the information that he needed to make the decision and judgment in this case. She also really couldn't say about the procedures overall, which was really scary in my opinion, um, if she was the spokesperson and that she couldn't say overall what is the procedure for letting judges or anybody involved in these decisions know about previous history. So while a lot of people were mad at the judge, there, at this point in time with what we knew, he could have not known about those previous instances and thought he was following you know, a good line of thought in giving Johnson a chance to go through the drug treatment program. Representative Stone said at this time, she thought then that anybody sentenced to a work release or treatment program should be fitted with a tracking device. We call them now tethers or trackers, things like that, where they would be able to track down the inmate if he or she walked away from the program, unless, of course, they figured out a way to cut it off. While some of the representatives, the state representatives who spoke out about the case seemed you know, emotional and angered, which I think they had every right to be, there were others that were a little more metered or measured in their responses, saying that they wanted to learn more about exactly what happened before they made any comments. But also, again, bringing up a good point that many people might actually be benefiting from these programs. It's having th these bad apples that escape from these drug treatment programs or work release facilities that make it worse for all those that may benefit from the programs. It also makes the general public more leery about having correctional facilities, whether or not they be prisons, halfway houses, or these types of programs in their neighborhood. And 
I definitely agree. I wouldn't want one in my neighborhood. I think we can all agree with that. And then to find out somebody who walked away from one, or in this case, three separate times, and in the case of Morris Center, having two escapees in escape in two days with both of them ending up at points in time committing violent crimes, that leads to more than just a little bit of concern. There was an investigation by a, ju- by a judiciary board into Johnson's escape and whether or not he should have been part of the program. The report actually said that the judge that placed Johnson in the drug treatment program, even though it's contradictory to the fact that he had two previous escapes, was the appropriate response. One thing that was not made clear in the report was as to when an actual arrest warrant for Johnson was issued, or even if there was one. For the family court date that he went to on September 21st, well, he never actually showed up for that court date. They actually rescheduled that hearing for December 8th, which was about 20, not quite 20 days prior to Denise's murder. You know, that, you know, was scheduled and he didn't show up for that either. And that's what triggered an arrest warrant that we know of. So we're not even really sure if the escape from Morris triggered an arrest warrant or not. So not to sound cynical again, but it didn't really seem like anybody learned anything from any previous escapes. Um, The one who had carjacked the person and stabbed them nine times, they had been captured much more quickly, you know, shortly after they stabbed the person. So this was already known. So you would really hope that they would have an arrest warrant out for Johnson, but that's still not clear. A consensus about what to do was, quote, taking common sense steps to minimize risk makes sense, but we need to be clear that walkaways can and do happen, end quote, from the, this is from the investigation that was done regarding Johnson's escape. To me, this almost sounds like a shrugging of the shoulders, like, oh, well, that's the cost of doing business. That's just my feeling. And emphasis was continually placed on the fact that reintegration into society is important for those who have been given prison or some type of punishment in the form of a sentence. And because work release is really a correctional facility, but it's not as strict, it's a way to try to help integrate those that will be entering into the community soon to have some of those support systems already there. Beth Walsh said, quote, it's much more effective to move, move these offenders through these programs than to just throw open the door at the end of their sentences and say, good luck, end quote. The judicial report also did point out that while there were suggestions that judges did have the ultimate decision on whether or not to place someone into a treatment, or work facility rather than prison, was accurate. Previously, it had not been clear as to whether or not a judge had that ability, but it was made clear that, yes, they did have that ability to send them to a program. In a much more assertive stance, 
Later, the head of the state prison system said that they would make a team of 11 officers whose purpose was to look at the at-risk probation and parolees and to also look to catch those that have escaped, I'm sorry, have escaped or walked away from the work release programs. So this is really kind of like the safe streets that they already had in place. Um, And this was stated by the Department of Corrections Commissioner Stanley W. Taylor. The governor at the time, Tom Carper, also wanted to um, assign state money specifically for seven additional officers to look at those who were on the escapee list and to try to find them. To narrow down the numbers, though, into a, a good specific time frame, in the two decades prior to Denise's murder, there were 88 inmates from work release centers that were still listed as an escapee status. So instead of looking at it from 1970 to 1999, just 1979 to 99 brought the number down to 88 inmates, whereas the 70 to 99 years um, was 115 inmates. The main addition to this program, which was, in my opinion, one of the biggest steps, was trying to correlate assistance from other jurisdictions so that officers working on you know, finding the escapees or looking for parolees that had jumped, you know, gone to another state or another area, that there would be officers who would work to coordinate having kind of a seamless, um, I guess I should say work together seamlessly, and also have procedures in place in looking at the escapees that might have gone to other states to be able to more easily ask for assistance from local law enforcement. I don't think any law enforcement really likes having other law enforcement coming in because they don't know the area um, or the people like local law enforcement does. So this tried to help blend them together seamlessly so that you had officers who were more adept at working with um, other law enforcement agencies and coordinating that for everyone involved. Now we have the two cases you know, that I've discussed, Denise Rudy, as well as the man who stabbed the person nine times while he carjacked the person's car. These being so close, close together, I think, really helped to bring the insufficiencies in these work release programs to light. Now, it wasn't in any of the earlier documentation that I could find out more about the person who did the carjacking, the person who had walked away from Morris the day before Johnson, but this man's name was Robert Murphy. Thankfully, the person that he stabbed did live, but like I said, because of these events happening so close together, these two walkaways happening back to back, and then both of them committing violent crimes brought a lot out in the media. There was a lot of media attention on this. When Murphy went to trial, his attorney asked for a change of venue because she felt that Kent County, um, the jurors from Kent County, would have been prejudiced by media coverage. But I kind of hate to break it to her. Delaware's a small state. You know, in some states, you have counties that are far apart, um, that they may not know a lot about what's happening in another county. But in Delaware, there's three counties. And I mean, when Altogether, we make up a region called Delmarva, including areas from other states. 
we hear the news from what's happening in other parts of Delmarva. So not just the same state that we live in. So I really think anybody who lived in Delaware at the time, whether it be in the Dover area, in Sussex County, which is the southernmost county, or in Newcastle County, I really think people would have been aware of this, especially as, you know, the walkaways happened from Dover, which is Kent County, and Denise Rudy was killed in Newcastle County. So no matter what, I think, you know, there would be a lot of media coverage. And no matter what, it would be very hard to find a jury pool who did not know a lot about what happened with at least one of the cases. Then with Dover itself being in about the middle of the state almost directly, you know, there really wasn't a way, in my opinion, that there could have been a change of venue. And so it was denied, actually. Throughout the early part of 2000, corrections facilities worked hard to try to implement the program's on having more officers who specifically looked for escapees, especially the 88 that had been considered missing from work release programs. An additional name was added when Leon S. Bradshaw walked away from work release. He had been a fugitive after escaping once before, and yet in October of 1999, he was sentenced to work release again, where he also walked away in January of 2000. Let's look at these dates. October 1999, he was sentenced to a work release after already walking away before. Yet a month after two people walk away from Morris, and at this point, Denise Rudy had not been killed yet. But the other man, Murphy, had committed his crimes, carjacking and attempted murder. Yet Leon S. Bradshaw was allowed to go to a work release program, and he yet again was put into a work release program with the judge that had overridden the normal procedure that if you've escaped or walked away before, you shouldn't go back into one. And while this episode has focused more on the ineffectual prison system and the way they communicated um, lapses in security or ways that they measured when an inmate was where they're supposed to be. While it's really been about those things, I also came across other cases that didn't receive the same media attention at the same time. Denise Rudy was a mother of four killed in front of witnesses close to Christmas time for no reason. When it was found out that one of the people that killed her had walked away from a work release program, it was kind of a perfect storm to make the headlines. But police were really fortunate as far as getting the evidence against Johnson and Garden and Hollis as well by having that Walmart videotape. But around the same time, a woman named Deborah L. Jackson, who was 38 years old, was murdered. However, there was not really a definitive time frame as to when the murder took place and no witnesses came forward to provide any information about the case. She was found underneath an overpass. Now, I don't know why, but when I hear of someone who's deceased and they've been alone, I just I just find it really hard to imagine what their their final moments were like. I've seen someone pass away suddenly from um, an undiagnosed heart condition at work. 
and people did everything they could. There were CPR trained people doing everything possible. And I didn't even know the person because I worked in a huge building, but I was the supervisor on duty that night. And all I wanted to do was make sure she knew that somebody was there trying to help her so that she knew she wasn't alone. So when I read that this woman was found underneath an overpass, and it seemed to be around the same time as Denise died, which means it was winter, so it was cold, I just feel like she must have felt so alone when she was dying. And it's just really heartbreaking to know that somebody was left like that, that another human being did that to a fellow human being and left them alone. I know logically it makes no sense to to say that you want that person to know that somebody is trying to help them. And once they pat, they've passed, that you want them to know that somebody is seeking justice for them, that you that the person, that body doesn't really know that. There's no way for them to know that. And I don't, again, I know it's not logical, but that's all I can feel is hoping that they know that somebody is trying to help them. But Deborah's body was not the only one found in Wilmington around that time. Just the day before her body was found, a man's body, John E. Kyle, 35 years old, was found by a city sanitation worker, and he had been stabbed to death. They did have a slight lead on the case, as somebody did call in a report of an assault from a payphone, because remember, 1999. Most people did not have cell phones. Um, They called it in as an anonymous tip, though, so they didn't have a way of tracking them. And going back a little bit further, in November of 1999, a young man named Craig Coles was shot just while riding his bike. Coles' father, Clyde Hale, reported that Craig's mother would wonder how somebody could enjoy Thanksgiving knowing that they had killed her son. And she would probably feel that every day or every day for the rest of her life, not just in holidays, but every day that somebody who had killed a loved one was out there enjoying life with no repercussions. That's something that is left with the loved ones and that what they go through every day. It must go through their minds hundreds of times a day in realizing that they're not going to make new memories. You look at Craig Coles, he was young. He could have given his fam- his parents grandchildren that they could have made memories with. And now that's never going to happen. They wouldn't get to see him go to college or, you know, see what type of career he could have carved out for himself. That's all taken away. Everybody who's a victim of a violent crime, it's, it's not only them that pay. If they're killed, their family lives with it every day. And for the victims that do survive, those memories never go away. And they live with that for the rest of their lives. So I tried to find out some more information about some of these murders. And I couldn't find anything else. I searched the newspapers out to current dates, you know, as far as they had that in the archive. Then I searched for unsolved murders. And the only thing that I found anything about was an article from 2022, which mentioned the case of Deborah Jackson as an unsolved murder. Um, And the article covered a number of murders that were left unsolved. 
the other two names, um, Craig Kyle, I'm sorry, Craig Coles and Johnny Kyle, they were not listed in that article, but as it only highlighted a handful of unsolved crimes, it may not have necessarily covered them. And again, I couldn't really find if anybody had ever been sentenced for those crimes either. So it's like they're out in limbo, and I want to know if anybody's still looking at these cases if they've not already been solved. I will also say, though, sometimes Delaware archives and databases are not really that up to date. One time I found an unidentified woman listed on a cold case site in, on the Delaware um, one of the Delaware um, archives, and it was still listed as an unidentified person. Yet, at the time where I searched and found her, she had actually been identified like four months earlier. So it had not been up to date. And whenever I'd email detectives that were listed as um, a contact for any of the cold cases, I would get a response back saying that they weren't assigned to the case anymore, even though their name and their email was there on the database. So that was kind of frustrating in terms of trying to get information. What I want to do just kind of quickly, because in a way it's comparing apples and oranges, but I wanted to take a look at some of the recidivism rates um, in the three states that encompass Delmarva. Now, recidivism is basically repeat offenders. And sometimes states are not consistent with how they calculate that. Some states will look at a three-year rate, meaning um, they look three years out and find out if an inmate has um, been arrested again and sentenced or convicted of a crime. So unfortunately for Delaware, it, it doesn't look really good. Um, one of the issues with there not being a consistent recording is that if one state it, um, looks at the rates from only one year, then it's probably going to look pretty good because a lot of people can manage to you know, stay on the straight and narrow or at least just not get caught for a year. When you go three years out, then that's where it gets a little more likely that somebody would have been caught um, committing another crime. So let's start with the most positive here, um, the Department of Corrections for Virginia, and this will be looking at the whole state, not just what's on the Delmarva Peninsula. Um, oh, and also sometimes these reports are put out three to four years after the dates they're actually referencing. So there was an article about Virginia in 2023, but it actually looked at um, the state prison system from 2018, so, or in 2018, so it's a few years behind there, but even looking at people who were reincarcerated within three years, the recidivism rate was only 20.6. Yes, that's one out of five, but comparatively to a lot of states, that's pretty darn good, and you'll see what I mean. It was a little harder to find information specifically about Maryland in terms of did they do the um, three years? Was it based on one year? But for Maryland, the I'm going to say the repeat offender rate was 40.5. Now, 
they rank 28th in the U.S. So, and we can see by the rate, it's about twice as much as Virginia. Virginia was about one out of five. Maryland is about two out of five. Now, oh, and I did forget to see where Virginia was ranked. And this is from wisevoter.com. Virginia was ranked number three, so they're pretty darn good. And by the wise voter count, not the article there at 23.3, but still, that's, you know, that's pretty good. They're ranked number three. Going back to Delaware, depending on the date of the report that I look at, we'll just go with the one from wise voter and the rate is 60.2. So that's three out of every five. And we're 41st, ranked 41st. So we have number three in Virginia, which is really good. 28 in Maryland, which is kind of so-so. And 41st in for Delaware. And you could look at it and say at least there's eight states you know, that are worse. The problem is this particular um, grid or study didn't have information from every state. And so there were only 42 states listed on the report. So um, Delaware was 41 out of 42. So not great there. But um, as far as the prison population, just looking at Delaware, since is the highest recidivism rate, the prison population is a little over 4,800 at the date of um, this report. And let me see if I can find the, re- the date. I'm very sorry. I should have had that up right away. Okay, so unfortunately it does not have a date, so it may just be a running tracker as information comes in. But Delaware, um, you know, again, ranked 41st as far as recidivism, prison population 40%, and for parolee population, it's 350 And I guess based on the population numbers for the state of Delaware, and they did have access to all 50 states for this particular ranking, and Delaware is 50th. So as far as the recidivism rate, the only state that where stats were available that ranked worse was Alaska. And they have a much bigger land area to cover. Um, They're at 61.6. Um, with being 41st in prison population and 44th in parole population. So, again, Delaware did not do great on on this um, grid here. Maryland is 25th in prison population and 20th in parole population, so they're kind of staying around the middle of the road. And Virginia was... um, Ninth in prison population and 39th in parole population. Okay, they had a few more numbers for Virginia and then 18th in probation population. So overall, Virginia is doing its best as far as keeping people out of prison. I'll have the link to this ranking um, if you want to review it. Um, So as important as getting rehabilitation and treatment is for people, it seems like Delaware has a little while to go on that before we stop the the repeat offenders. 
So that's where I'm going to end today's episode. Um, I think once I got past the frustration of just reading some of the numbers and especially when I saw that one other person had escaped the day before Johnson and it was just like, how could they not be on high alert once they have one person who walked away? you would think that they'd be a little more apprehensive and maybe they could have called the court since he was in a treatment program and saying he couldn't make it until they had a better handle on things and figuring out what happened um, with the person who escaped on the 20th. But no, they just gave him a bus pass basically. And he was supposed to go to court and he never did and was off the radar until he and some cohorts committed a violent crime one night and probably still kind of riding high after being able to commit that crime, they went out again and killed somebody. So I really hope nobody else is feeling really cynical about the future of crime and punishment here in the United States. Um, looking at the three states you know, involved or you know where DeMarva is located, we kind of run the gamut of a state that's very well ranked in terms of, you know, um, repeat offender rates, recidivism, to one that is ranked pretty poorly. So maybe there are ways that states can learn from each other. And especially since the states of Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia, even the Western counties, meaning over the Chesapeake Bay, Br Bay Bridge or over the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, there's still a lot of similarities that we have with each other to be able to communicate and see what Virginia and even Maryland, though the rate was higher than Virginia, it was still better than Delaware's, um, to you know, work together, try to find out what works the best. And, you know, we're not adversaries. These are things that everybody should be working on together, I think, to find what best fits a certain prison population, you know, what works for, you know, states on the East coast might be totally different than that on the West coast because of the whole mindset or differences, um, and ideals. You, know, you may have to look at things a little bit differently, but I think Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia all have enough similarities that we should be able to work together with that. That's just my opinion. And I also do want to point out, too, that with Delaware having a relatively lower population, all it takes is like an upsurge of a handful of people um, reoffending, and that can really drive up the statistics. It's like if you have one out of 10 people do something, that's 10%. Yet if you have two out of 50 people do something, that's only 4%, even though it's more people there was more of a sampling to begin with and so forth. So all it would take is, you know, like I said, a handful of repeat offenders, um, a resurgence of them, and that could really bring up the Delaware stats, but that was over a three-year period as well. So I hope everybody learned a little something, you know, about the treatment programs, the reason why they're so important, but also why they have to be closely monitored and regulated. And again, I hope everybody's not so cynical like I was while going through all of this. Coming up for the next episodes, I'll probably do one more true crime. And then I'll look at 
say, a natural disaster or a man-made disaster um, that took place and cover that because it would have been a little while since we've covered one of those. But I will talk to everybody soon. Thank you so much for hanging in there and listening to this episode. Talk to you soon. Bye.